0: dive in, I want to thank our listeners and fans, especially those who have left reviews. This review comes from Dory Stewart and it's titled, Love. As someone with a family member battling cancer, I so value this podcast. The guests and conversations that Andrea shares are both informative and inspiring. This is a must listen. Dory, thank you so much for your five-star rating and review, and I am so happy that the podcast is helping you during your time of need. Ray Suarez is a colorectal cancer survivor. He just finished his eight-part podcast series called The Things I Thought About When My Body Was Trying to Kill Me. The podcast deals with diagnosis, treatment, and recovery from cancer. Ray, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story.
1: Great to be with you.
0: So take us back to the beginning. Did you have symptoms? When did this all start for you?
1: Well, I, was, um, I guess the first time I realized something was wrong was when I was on a 275-mile bike ride with my son. And normally, this wouldn't have been a big deal at all but I was really struggling.
0: Bicycle and or motorcycle?
1: Bicycle. Oh, my God. <laughs> and uh, it, it hit me that uh, this was much harder than it should have been. I had no idea why, but I was coming to the end of a very tough year. Tremendous stress, lots of setbacks uh, personally and professionally, uh, money problems pursuant to the professional problems so I chalked it up to that and you know obviously you're getting older so you think well maybe this was just a a little bit too audacious to try to do this 275 mile bike ride but really uh, that was the first sign but I pushed it to the back of my mind I had too many things going on I moved I rented my house I began a job teaching at Amherst College in Massachusetts, and the stress and the sleeplessness and the fatigue never really left, even though I wasn't trying to ride a bike 55 miles a day for five days in a row anymore. So, you scary me. You just described what's going <laughs>
0: on with me. <laughs> so, scared me a lot. Well, from- I,
1: I chalked it all up. I chalked it all up to age, stress, and personal setbacks i really was you know chewing this over ruminating angry all the time okay what i really just should have done was gone to the doctor but i eventually did
0: how long ago was this
1: this was um 4 years ago
0: so in addition to the fatigue and the sleeplessness i think you mentioned what other symptoms did you have or begin to have?
1: Those were really the only signs that something was wrong. And and toward the end of this window, I started to have uh, gastro symptoms. So I was getting heartburn and reflux. And these were not things that I had had to deal with in the past, not things that I had experienced in the past. So I was chewing Tom's and, and trying to... Um, exercise enough to make myself exhausted so I would fall asleep at night and that wasn't working. My eyes would open up and I'd be walking around the house at three o'clock in the morning and I finally was starting to concede that something was really wrong with me. I had to move again and it was when I was unpacking from the second move that a wave of fatigue, a literal, it felt like my whole body was being swept away by this incredible exhaustion while I was carrying a box of books up the stairs. Totally unlike me, totally unlike anything I had ever experienced before. And I just admitted to myself that I was really sick and went to an Eternist fairly quickly. And before long, He called back. They took a blood test and did a history. And my wife answered the phone and internist says, hi, it's Dr. Thatchett. What's your husband doing? And she said, well, he's moving furniture and, and unloading books because we just moved. And he said, tell him to stop. Tell him to stop doing that and to sit down. You've got to take him to an emergency room right away. He needs an emergency blood transfusion and a bag of iron his hemoglobin is (gasps) 5.3 and it should be 15 uh for a man my age he says i don't even know how he was doing all that uh he should have been lightheaded and uh needing to to get onto a couch if he stood up too quickly right (laughs) (laughs) Oh <laughs> but my God. somehow I was pushing through. It was mind over matter. Right. And uh, we headed to the nearest emergency room, spent the night standing around, getting my blood typed again and again and getting the donor blood typed again and again. They finally got it into my arm, got some iron into my arm. And naturally, by the next morning, I felt better. But that obviously was not the answer to what was wrong with me uh proceeded directly to a gastroenterologist she said you're going to need an endoscopy and you're going to need a colonoscopy and i said to her well doctor you know what are the possibilities what what's the list of things that we're looking at here and she looked at me and said well it's not really a list you've either got a bleeding ulcer or cancer and it was as stark as that
0: wow and
1: as i say in my podcast it was the only time in my life I had ever wished I had a bleeding so, ulcer. Uh...
0: <laughs> right? I mean, totally. Like what? Oh my gosh! I almost appreciate that though. Right? This sort of black and white, because most doctors are sort of wishy washy. And
1: no, she was straightforward. No beating around the bush. Wow. She said, you know, was as straight as that. It's not really a list. There's just two things. And uh, sure enough, in a couple of days, the pathology report was back from the uh, tissue samples from the polyps that she had found. And I had two tumors, one in my ascending colon and one in my transverse colon. And I was going to have to have them out as soon as possible. I had another blood transfusion. And... uh, that wasn't really to cure my anemia as much as to get me well enough to go under the knife. Yeah. They were afraid to operate on me in the condition that I was in. So, yeah, of course. I started to take care of that. And a couple of weeks later, checked into Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital in New York City, one of the great cancer hospitals in the world, and uh, went in with a colon and came out with a semicolon.
0: as a writer i really appreciate that (laughs) so i'm curious just because you were in amherst how come you didn't go to one of the many amazing medical centers in boston
1: well just on the cusp of getting this diagnosis we moved from amherst to philadelphia so uh, temple was literally right around the corner And so I ended up uh, getting much of my treatment there uh, and then uh, getting a recommendation, as often happens, a line on a great surgeon and uh, ended up at uh, Sloan Kettering.
0: Got it. So what stage was the cancer?
1: 3B slash C. And this is one of the, the great frustrations of this whole journey is that you never can know everything you wanna know when you wanna know it. There's always the answer to one question that's after, over the next mountain and in the next valley. You have to get wait for this test or wait for this uh, screen or wait for this assessment. And sure enough, after I had these tumors removed, well, I said, well, Doc, how are we? And he says, well, I can't tell you yet. Uh, we." found that your tumors had penetrated the wall of your colon. So as a precaution, we took the adjacent lymph nodes out and we're going to have to look at those to see if there are any cancer cells in those. And out of the 36 lymph nodes that they took adjacent to the colon, there was cancer in three of them. So that meant um, chemotherapy, That meant that uh, they were still optimistic about my recovery, uh, still pretty positive about my prognosis because of my underlying, what they perceived as my underlying health. But it was going to be a more complicated recovery than if they had taken those lymph nodes and found nothing had moved there.
0: Right. What was the chemotherapy like and how long did you have to do it?
1: Well, the the journey to chemo is interesting because you are faced then with the the lovely paradox of having to get well recover from surgery in order to start making yourself sick again and <laughs> i sat with the oncologist and he said well look you've got two choices there are two indicated chemotherapies for your kind of cancer one is called falfox combination of two drugs and one is called cabox and that's short for capcetabine and oxaliplatin he said that one was longer and one was shorter i said well why would anyone choose the longer one he said well the longer one is less toxic i said oh, all right well now that makes sense he says yeah but the longer one is emerging from the data to also be less effective so why would you do it longer and less effective well only because you don't want to be as sick and he says sometimes in older patients kpox is just a lot for them to handle and they just can't do it and i would recommend for them uh, fall fox but for you and this was one of those moments where talking with a generational peer, he was almost exactly my age, uh, was helpful. We looked at each other across the desk and I said, well, if you had this stage of cancer, if you had just had this surgery, which one would you do? And he said, absolutely no question, K-box. And so that was it, K-box, four months,
0: I love that he gave you an answer. So far I'm loving your doctors because yeah, they, again, are, they
1: were terrific. They were absolutely that's a, terrific. That's uh, a question
0: a lot of doctors won't answer. Or, or they, they beat because around the so bush afraid. because
1: they want it to be your decision. But that's he was, right. He was exactly. these people were very straightforward with me. And that's who awesome. knows, maybe maybe um, forty years of being a reporter and asking a lot of questions um, had me asking the questions in the right way to get it to elicit an answer. But Either way, I got great right. answers from my doctors, very straightforward, very concrete, and also gave you the grounding to make the decisions for yourself that you had to make. In the case of KPOX, it was um, a dual drug therapy, so you were taking 2,000 milligrams a day of capsetabine, which is a very toxic drug. Um four tablets in the morning and four tablets at night, 500 milligrams each. And then uh, every three weeks, an infusion of oxaliplatin, which also is incredibly toxic. And he warned me that the effect was not level. It was cumulative. So after every round of pills and after every infusion, I would feel worse and worse until it, crescendoed at the end and i'd feel worst of all but you know you you have to assess for yourself what you think you can handle whether you think it's worthwhile to try to get through this quicker rather than slower and to assess what your odds are um if you don't do it and he was very straightforward about that too he said look right now you would be called cancer-free. We've done several diagnostic tests. These were the only places in your body where we found cancerous cells. We took them out. So now it actually is in your choice to not do chemotherapy at all.
0: Oh, oh, interesting. He said, I would, you know,
1: you're cancer-free, but we don't know what's lurking you know, one cell here, two cells there. We don't know what's lurking somewhere in your body. There's just no way to know. So I would recommend that you do chemotherapy, but it's not absolutely required. And that gave me, you know, obviously a lot to think about, but also the feeling that they were being very straight with me. And I had a basis on which to uh, move ahead Feeling like I was doing the right thing for myself and I did
0: so talk to me a little bit about those four months of chemotherapy and the effects of it getting worse what was that like for you
1: well you read you know, every drug, even a bottle of aspirin, comes with that oh, yeah. that little piece of paper with the tiny, tiny type describing <laughs> what your possible side effects may be. And I looked over... That, that
0: I need glasses and a magnifying <laughs> yeah, glass right. just to read well, these days. It's I like... looked
1: over that fearsome set of side effects. And you know, they're graded. So the ones at the top are the ones that are most frequently experienced by people who take the drugs. And then once you get down to the bottom, there were only a couple of cases of this, but they... They are obliged by law to tell you about them. But the list together between the two drugs was horrifying, absolutely horrifying. And so you have to approach this with a kind of discipline and also a suspension of obsession with comfort. You have to decide for yourself that you're going to kind of detach from constantly checking yourself. As is human nature after you've just had abdominal surgery and you've got the scar running up your belly and you don't feel so great, but you've got to stop that constantly checking in with yourself. Yes, you should be aware of what's going on with yourself, but you can't be obsessive about it because it's up to you to keep on taking the drugs. You know, the gold standard for difficult medicine, is something called DOT, directly observed therapy, where if a patient is on a tuberculosis drug that makes them very ill, an HIV drug, where uh, the, the side effects are terrible and they're afraid that if they just give you the pills and send you home, you won't take them, they make you come into the doctor's office to take it and a doctor or a nurse watches you. Well, here I was after covering stories like that for years, knowing that DOT was was the big deal. And instead, <laughs> they sent me packages of uh, of chemo in the mail. A courier came to my house <laughs> and brought them, and it would arrive in a hazmat pills, package, right? right? The pills would arrive yep. in a hazmat package with a symbol on it, um, you know, with a skull and crossbones saying, yep. absolutely be terribly careful when you get rid of these pills. And I'm looking at the wrapper thinking, oh, I know how I'll get rid of them. I'll swallow them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's so true. And people who haven't experienced it, I mean, if, you, if it's an infusion, it, the nurse comes in in like a hazmat suit. Right. It's crazy.
1: They it's introduced that protocol school- halfway through my treatment. So the first two visits, she just comes in looks for my port, swabs the alcohol, punctures me, the line's in, and that's it. The last two times, she came in a hazmat suit, and the (laughs) the IV pole was all wrapped in plastic, and you had to strain to see the meters through the plastic. They were protecting themselves from what they were putting in my body, which is astonishing. You think, all right, now I'm going to sit here, and it's I said to the doctor, well, I guess every now and then I'll go into the hospital. They'll put a line in my arm and put this stuff in me. And he said, oh, no, this is so toxic that you have to have a port into your vena cava. It would wreck every blood vessel in your arm if we put it in your arm. And the weird thing was, I was, I'm, well, it would be an exaggeration to say jolly, but I was resigned to having the surgery to have my tumors removed. And I was a good boy and I did what I was told and I followed instructions and and all of that. Getting the port put in my chest drove me crazy, bonkers, in a way that having surgery for the tumors didn't. I was in a freezing room. And in order to uh, expose your upper chest to put in the port, they cover your face. And when they put the uh, disinfectant on and arranged all the sheets and towels around the area where they're going to open me up, the last thing they did was put a cover over my face. And for some reason, I was so amped up. I was so crazy at that moment that having that thing put over my face just made me nuts.
0: Is, is this when they inserted the port, yes. like actually?
1: And I okay. said, okay, well, where's the doctor? Let's do this thing already. And they said, oh, Mr. Suarez, we're really sorry. The doctor's, the doctor's running late on the previous procedure, but he'll be here soon. I said, okay, that's fine. Just take this thing off my face then until he gets here. Oh, right. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, we can't do that. So I'm laying there like with a cover on my face and getting more and more anxious and agitated and, yeah. and unhappy. And I said, um, look, can you give me something? I don't know. why. Give me an Ativan <laughs> or something. I,
0: can you just give me <laughs> That's something? That's what I was about to say.
1: <laughs> and they said, no, well, if we gave you something now, it wouldn't take effect yet in time for the doctor to be here. I said, okay, then just knock me out. And I'll just be out until he gets here and does what he's got to do. No, well, we, since we don't know exactly when he's going to be here, we don't want to put you out either. So I'm laying there on the table, freezing, crazy. And I've got a shroud on my face. And now my arm is itchy. So I said to the nurse, uh, look, uh, I'm just going to scratch my arm. Cause one arm is trust you know, because they don't want me to move because they put this thing in my shoulder. And so I got to scratch. I got to scratch my face. I have an itch on my face where you've got this thing on my face. And she says, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Suarez. Here, I'll scratch your face. Now, if you've ever had anybody in life try to scratch an itch that you have, they never get it. They never get the right place and they get the right amount of scratchy (laughs) or anything. So she, being a nurse, covers her finger in a towel or something and starts to gently massage my cheek. I said, no, no, (laughs) my face really itches and I'm gonna scratch my face. No, you can't do that. I said, well, let's get the doctor in here and knock me out and put this thing in me. No, well, he's not here yet. So I laid there very quietly and waited till everybody in the room was off doing other things, chatting somewhere else in the room. And I reached up with the arm that had a line in it and started scratching my face. And I got admonished by the nurse, scolded for scratching no. my face. I said, "Oh my! I gotta goodness. get the hell out of here. <laughs> this is this is not making me happy." And you know, before too long, the thing was in my chest, and I was coming to and walking out of the place. I walk in, my wife's in the waiting room. She says, "What happened to you? This was supposed to take fifteen minutes." I said, "Oh, it's a long tale of woe. I'll tell you in the car." I got to get <laughs> out of. Let me out of here. It was really made me crazy. I and it's funny. You never, it you never know crazy. what's going to get to you. If this is all new, I've, I've never had a medical procedure before. I've never been an inpatient in a hospital before in my life. I've never had anything serious happen to me. I've never been opened up. All of this was new, and I was up until that moment a pretty good boy. <laughs> <laughs> <What>? <laughs> but right right at that point, I thought, this is, this is making me crazy. They got to take this thing off my face. Well, I had the port in. The port is a reminder. Every time you brush up against it, every time you realize it's there. And when you're taking chemotherapy drugs that have a neurological effect, that make your nerve endings crazy, that light up the networks of nerves in your body, that incision also starts to feel intense pain. When I would start to get my infusions, right away, I would feel pain in that part of my chest because my nerves, my nerve endings had been interfered with, messed with, insulted. But along with the 900 other effects I was having, I guess that was just just one of the minor ones.
0: And you had those lines flushed every day, right?
1: Uh, no, I only had to have the line flushed every now and then.
0: Oh, yeah. really? Interesting. Okay. Because the right. port
1: was not exposed; I- it was uh, subcutaneous, and so um, okay, she would stick okay. it through my skin into the uh, into the mesh every time I would get an infusion.
0: I can't. Get over that story because it seems to me they forgot you were a person.
1: Yeah, you know, things were, and and every other part of the story, I have nothing but the highest praise for the medical professionals. I worked with their compassion, their decency, their care, their kindness. But this was a moment where everything that was happening was happening for their convenience and not mine and that was that was the moment where I thought "Hmm, yeah this is the kind of thing that makes people complain about the system
0: yeah was that your worst moment would you Um, say yeah I mean
1: obviously there were a lot of times of of really bad physical problems but uh, you kind of expected them they were built into what was going on this was an unnecessarily problematic moment I guess (laughs)
0: What was your best moment in all of it?
1: The last day of the last bunch of pills, I looked down in the bottom of the pill bottle and there were four pills left and one dose left. And I said to myself, you know, I could just throw these in the garbage. I could flush them down the toilet. No one would know. I'm standing here by myself in the kitchen. And I've covered enough medicine over the years to know that the impact of these four pills is pretty marginal. Like whatever's going to happen to me at this point is likely going to happen. Recurrence, -recurrence, non-recurrence, long-term remission, or a problem right away. Nothing is hinging on these four pills. But up until that moment, I had done everything that the internist asked me to do. I had done everything that the gastroenterologist had asked me to do. I had done everything that the oncologist and the surgeon had asked me to do. And I thought, why why wreck my perfect record now? I'll just swallow these last four pills. I'll feel terrible. And then tomorrow, little by little, I'll start feeling better. And instead of feeling like I was at the receiving end of coercion, I felt like I was actually making a choice for a change and choosing to do the right thing and choosing to be done. And now I was ready to begin being better.
0: Oh, I love that story. I have to ask you, so it sounds like you covered healthcare. I did
1: many years covering healthcare. Sure.
0: How do you think that impacted the way You went through. You know, it it
1: moved a lot of the things that I had covered over the years from abstractions. And I'm a smart guy, so I understood what I was talking about all the years that I was doing stories on this stuff. So it wasn't like I was just making it up, but it is very different when it's you, when it's your body and your side effects and you're entering the belly of the beast as a patient and dealing with. Uh, brusque receptionists and nurses who don't understand your question and doctors who are in a hurry and all the other things that are just, you know, part and parcel of the way we do this in here in the United States. So um, my wife had had a very threatening brain tumor 10 years earlier. So that was only one oh level goodness. of remove, but I went through all that with her, um, her assessment, her surgery, her recovery. But again, it's not you. When it's you, it's very different. And it stops being abstract and it continues to be a miracle. I had always appreciated it. I always appreciated what these people at various points in the chain do. Uh, But yeah, it is um, a whole other world when you wake up and you look down at your belly, and there's all these tubes coming out of it. <laughs> it, it makes it realer than it ever was before.
0: <laughs> I know an oncologist. So here is a doctor who's been treating cancer for over a decade. And when he was diagnosed with lymphoma, a cancer that he treated, he said he finally got it. He never understood Why his patients didn't seem to, he thought they didn't listen to him, especially initially. He thought they just weren't paying attention, weren't listening, and he would get frustrated. And it wasn't until he received the same diagnosis that he had given so many times. And he was shell-shocked for a solid week, for a whole week. And he knew all the ins and outs, and he knew exactly what his treatment was going to be, but... He said he finally got it and realized, oh, my my patients are just in
1: total shock. Yeah, it's like it's like a, it you know a sudden gush of water that's going to swamp your canoe. You have to sit upright in the boat. You got to um, keep that water out of there, and you have you have analogy. to keep from getting swept away. And I, you know, I suppose. Um, depending on the diagnosis and depending on the cancer and depending on how advanced it is, depending on your prognosis, who could blame you if your canoe is swamped, if you just sort of throw up your hands and just figure this is it, this is the end of my life. Um, there are some cancers, as you know, that the chance of a uh, two year and five year survival is, is close to nil and keeping hold of yourself after something like that, is tremendously challenging and takes a, a level of fortitude that uh, that maybe pe- people all along the chain don't understand.
0: Yeah, wow. Ray, what is one thing you wish you had known at the very beginning of your cancer journey?
1: I had to learn gradually to force myself to take it easy and to force myself not to worry about all the things that I was worried about before my diagnosis. Getting better had to become job one. And I couldn't continue to tie myself in knots over some of this stuff. I just had to let it go. Very much unlike me. Like what? Not me at all. So it, it may sound like an easy thing. Well, of course. I mean, you've got to take care of your health and, and, and then worry about this other stuff after. Not something I'm good at. But when you're sitting chemoed out on the couch watching uh, British crime procedurals, uh, you have to think, all right, what can I do about my objective circumstances? Right now, real, really in real life, nothing. And once you surrender to that, once you allow that to be the answer, you're on your way to a different kind of wisdom, I think. That's what worked for me anyway. I needed to find inner reserves of calm because I was tremendously angry after my diagnosis. Not frightened, but angry. Angry because I treasured a kind of control over my life, treasured the illusion, as it turns out, of being at the wheel of my ship. And for for once in my life, I was no longer in control. I could do everything that I was told to do by my doctors and die. I could be a jerk because I just don't know how to react. I could do all kinds of things, but I was not, not in control of the outcome. I could assist. I could comply with the instructions I got to the degree possible but i could not control the outcome and i was ferociously angry i had to over time let go of that i had to stop looking for work like a frantic crazy person i had to let myself be taken care of which was also really hard for me to do and uh, you know that wisdom uh, that wisdom took some time, but it all, it all arrived little by little till I was in a, in a reasonably serene state by the end of it all, even though I felt absolutely <laughs> awful, like just indescribably awful. That, that might have contributed to my feeling of, well, look, you know, there's just so much I can do right now and I've just got to wait until I'm in some kind of shape to take more control over my life. Um, religion helped, um,
0: were you religious before?
1: Yeah. yeah. But again, it's one of those things moving from the abstract to the concrete. I went to church one Sunday morning and I'm sitting there in the pew and what's read out from the front of the, of the church for that week's old Testament lesson, but the story of Job. And I'm sitting there in the pew listening to Job's story. Job who loses everything, and it's—I've always taken it as a fable because I—I I don't think I could actually be religious if it required believing in a god who sort of <laughs> makes bets and says, "All right, you know, t- you. take everything away yes. from this guy and see how he reacts." I, that's not a god exactly. that I believe. In. So, but I'm thinking about Job. I said, "Am I Job?" Well, no. I'm—you know—my family was fine. I still had the things that I had worked for all my life. I was sick like Job, but also talking a lot with my friends about what to make of my life. And I thought, well, you know, Job's friends say to him, ah, oh, come on, Job, look, you were a good guy. You did everything you were supposed to do. And you look at what happened to you. How can you, how can you be uh, you know, a faithful guy? And so you can either be Job or you can be Job's friends. And at that moment I thought, eh, I'm gonna stick with trying to be Job <laughs> instead, of, <laughs> instead of Job's <laughs> friends. And it was one of, one of those moments where I thought, all right, I can do this. I can get through this just, just like Job. Like any good fable, uh, it has a moral, it has some durable lessons in it. And that's why we still tell each other that story 3000 years after it was written uh, and because of those durable truths that are in it.
0: Yeah. Wow. Have you ever read When Bad Things Happen to Good I People? I have.
1: I have. And interviewed the author.
0: Yeah. 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 You did? Oh, I love that book. I just love the way he talked about religion and praying to God when you have a catastrophic illness and, and just. And also his personal experience. I mean, just loved it.
1: He, you know, and he is a corrective. He has to be a corrective to what I believe is the incorrect way that religion is often taught, where if you do these things, these things won't happen to you. Like it's some sort of um, magic set of incantations that will protect you from all harm. When we know, we know, as you know, any grown-up knows, that that's not true. But we still, deep down, still harbor that idea. Like, you know, look, how could this thing happen to me? I, I, you know, I, I did everything that I was told to do. I, I am proud that during the whole experience, I never, ever said to myself, "Why me?" Because, after all, why not me? You know, if if tens of thousands of people are are diagnosed with this particular ailment every year in America, like why not me? It has you know, if it's going to be somebody, it could have been me. It could have been somebody else, but it would happen to be me. And um, the the when bad things happen to good people is a is a reminder that you know trying to trying to hit all your marks and and. Do the things that you think an upright person is supposed to do was never meant to be some sort of um, maker's warranty from from the almighty that nothing bad was going to happen to you. Where did you get that idea? And if you got that idea from somebody, drop it. It's not a workable idea.
0: (laughs) Oh, gosh, you are so... So delightful and funny, just so funny. If you could only do one thing to change healthcare in the U.S., what would it be and why?
1: I would make sure that people can get the help they need. Even now with the Affordable Care Act, uh, even now with widespread availability of private insurance, millions of people have no steady, reliable health care. And when I was getting a course of drugs that cost $48,000 for four months, I knew how capricious this is, how accidental it all is. It was Cobra from my last job that paid for all this. God knows what would have happened to me otherwise. I was able to be treated by the best doctors in the best places and get the right drugs. And I knew, as I knew when I was sitting in an inner city hospital, in an emergency room, uh, surrounded by my new North Philadelphia neighbors, waiting for a blood transfusion. I knew that two-thirds of the people in that waiting room with me had no health insurance. We have the craziest, most scattershot, most illogical system of medical provision in the developed world. And I've covered healthcare in other countries. I've written stories on the German system and the Dutch system and the French system and the British system and the Mexican system. And the way we give healthcare, it lands us up with this crazy system where we spend twice as much as anybody else on the planet and don't get as good results. So if I could change one thing, it's a pretty titanic thing to change, but more universal access, less Hail Mary passes from 100 yards out with the most expensive machines in the world uh, trying to help and save people who are likely not going to be saved or helped while allowing other people's illnesses to get worse and more expensive every moment that we don't treat them.
0: I'm just curious, how did you know that those people didn't have health insurance?
1: Well... A lot of them were probably on Medicaid or some form of supported health care, but poor people use emergency rooms as their primary care providers. They don't have primary care doctors, they don't have insurance. And so what they do is they wait till something gets really bad and then they go to the emergency room where the provision of their care is exponentially more expensive than if we just gave them insurance. So the incentives are all in the wrong place. The incentives for the the preservation and maintenance of good health, the incentives for avoiding the most expensive, most dangerous maladies, catching them early and treating them early, all the incentives and all the payments are all in the wrong place. So you end up with a system like that.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Are you ready to lighten things up with a Thriver replica question? Okay. All right, here we go. Beach, desert or mountains? Desert. Ooh, surprise. I what? love
1: austere beautiful places. I'm not a beach person. Mountains are okay, but I I, like, I love deserts.
0: What's your favorite desert in
1: the US? Well, I guess the Mojave. Uh it's a, it's a phenomenal place.
0: Yeah, I lived in Southern California for a long time, so. All right, Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones?
1: Um, that's tough because I admire them all in various ways. I'd have to say Beatles because their contribution to pop music is so enduring that we'll, be, we'll still be singing their songs 100 years from now, and we won't be singing um, Brown Sugar. 100 years from now.
0: <laughs> what is one word that best describes you? Durable. Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear?
1: God only knows, even though I didn't pick, pick the Beach Boys.
0: It's <laughs> a great song. What about the last meal you want to eat?
1: Wow. Uh, I want a complete, and I mean a complete platter of my soul food, um, Puerto Rican food, um, pork chops, what, pork what chops, mashed plantains with pork cracklings, yellow rice and beans, um, fried green plantains. Um, just, yeah, I mean, then I'll go to heaven with a good meal in my stomach if that's where I'm going.
0: Right? That's how I, that's how I feel about it. <laughs> like, I'm going to go out and have a great meal. <laughs> what about the last person or people you want to see? Well,
1: I guess, though I, uh, though I love my children with a desperate, ferocious power, uh, the last person I would have to say goodbye to is my wife, who I have been in a relationship with since I was a teenager. And I'm now on Medicare. So that's that's a long march. Wow.
0: That is. Wow. What about the last words you will speak?
1: Uh, I did my best. And I love you all.
0: Wow. And aside from Cancer you, what's one resource that you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And please tell everyone how they can get in touch with you and find your podcast.
1: I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter at Ray Suarez News. And uh, the podcast is easily found wherever you get your podcasts. And gosh, if you, just, if you just search my name, you'll not only find my cancer podcast, the things I thought about when my body was trying to kill me. But you'll also see my other two series that are up right now, one on downward mobility in the United States called Going for Broke, and a weekly series on international news called World Affairs. And they're all, as they say, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: <laughs> I'm excited. I'm going to listen to them. Good, I'm good. a total podcast junkie. I have... I have the premium subscriptions to Stitcher and Wondery, and I have the Google. I have them I all. Have them all. I, have them all. I, I just I love podcasts. Well, I
1: was late to the form. I was a skeptic. I thought it was going to destroy radio, and I may still be right. But I am doing podcasts now, so.
0: <laughs> you have to. You're a journalist, and you have a great voice. Oh, thank you. So you, yeah, Ray. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story.
1: It's been a pleasure.
0: That's cancer.university and hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast, real people, true stories.